0: Hello and welcome back to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. This is season four, episode four, and we're back on the subject of forensic psychology. Last week, we talked a little bit about uh, psychology's role in criminal investigations. Today, we're going to talk about deception and malingering. Now, as a quick reminder, forensic psychology is a field of psychology that deals uh, with all aspects of human behavior as it relates to the law or legal systems. So today, let's discuss a little bit about how psychologists have identified a number of key investigative tasks where psychology is particularly relevant. Investigative decision making, for example especially decisions that require in-depth understanding of criminal behavior. That's particularly relevant to law enforcement and their job. The tasks of discovering the truth is an essential investigative fact-finding process. Now the police attempt to detect whether or not someone is telling them the truth. Psychologists have participated in the development and testing of a variety of techniques to detect deception. And today we're going to talk a little bit about those. We're going to start with the polygraph. So the polygraph gets its origins, or at least the modern polygraph uh, gets its origins going all the way back to 1917, when William Marston developed a systolic blood pressure test and attempted to use recorded physiological responses as evidence of a person's innocence. Now, interestingly enough, when it was first used, Marston's testimony was rejected in court uh, during the Fry versus United States 1923 case. Uh, but the that the reason for that was because the judge believed at the time that the scientific community had not yet reached a consensus on the efficiency of the test. Now, that being said, it was still early on, and that's, you know, you see the development over time. So, a polygraph relies on the principle that deception is associated with physiological responses and so the machine records an individual's autonomic nervous system responses when asked questions. It records it in a number of different ways using measurement tools. So the measurement devices get attached to the upper chest and the abdomen and they measure uh, breathing. Uh, They measure sweat on the skin uh, by attaching electrodes to the fingertips and heart rate is measured by a partially inflated blood pressure cuff attached to an arm. In a forensic context, a polygraph is used to measure a person's physiological responses to questions being asked by the examiner. Now, in a Canadian context, the polygraph course at the Canadian Police College is restricted to police officers only. There are other countries, however, where... uh, Civilians are tasked with such functions. That's not the case in Canada. In Canada, polygraph tests are often used by the police to help in their criminal investigations. Polygraph uh, disclosure tests are used to uncover information about a person's past behavior. And governmental agencies in Canada still use the polygraph as a general screening tool. Some police services uh, require applicants to take a polygraph test as part of the initial hiring process and the Canadian Security Intelligence Service CSIS also requires a potential employee to take uh, a polygraph test in order to assess the candidate's reliability and loyalty so not only is it used as an investigative tool it is also used as a screening tool for law enforcement now there are various types of polygraph tests and uh, we'll look at a couple of them to get an understanding of how they uh, w- you know how they are utilized so The first thing that you should identify is that the polygraph does not actually detect lies, like there's no way to detect a lie specifically. What it's doing is it's looking at the physiological responses to lying and it understands that the physiological responses to lying share much in common with the physiological responses to anxiety or anger, embarrassment and fear. And we know how the body responds to those things. And so what you're looking for is basically a way to measure out someone's responses so that you can assess the reactions that they're having. Polygraph tests rely on measuring physiological responses to different types of questions. Some questions are designed to elicit a larger physiological response in guilty individuals rather than those who are innocent. First type of test... uh, that we look at is the relevant-irrelevant test. So it's a test developed by William Marston and later refined by John Larson for use in criminal investigations. It includes only two types of questions. Relevant questions concerning the crime and irrelevant questions that are unrelated to the crime. If an individual's physiological responses are larger to the relevant question than to the irrelevant questions, it would be considered a sign of deception. Now, a major problem with the test is that nearly everyone responds uh, more physiologically to the relevant questions than to the irrelevant ones. And so, for that reason, the test is no longer used in law enforcement. However, it is still used uh, for employee screening. So, potential or current employees uh, might have to do a polygraph relating to drug use or rule breaking or honesty depending on where they work and uh, you know what the rules are surrounding it but that's about the only application for it presently the second type of test is the control question test now the most commonly used test to investigate criminal acts is the con- is the control questions test or CQT It is a polygraph test that includes irrelevant questions that are unrelated to the crime, relevant questions concerning the crime being investigated, and control questions concerning the person's honesty and past history prior to the event being investigated. During the pre-test interview, the examiner primes the suspect uh, to accept the accuracy of the polygraph test. So, sorry, not the suspect, the subject. And three types of questions that are asked are irrelevant questions about the respondent's identity or personal background. Uh, These are included as a baseline, but not scored. And then relevant and control questions used to establish guilt or innocence. Relevant questions Um, deal with the crime being investigated and control questions are designed to be emotionally arousing for all respondents. They typically focus on the person's honesty and past history prior to the event being investigated. So the polygraph examiner assumes that they can detect deception by comparing reactions to the relevant and the control questions. Guilty suspects are assumed to react more to relevant questions than control questions. In contrast, innocent suspects are assumed to react more to control questions than to relevant questions. The reasoning behind these assumptions is that innocent people know they are telling the truth about the relevant questions. So they will react more strongly to general questions about their honesty or their past history. Final one we will look at here is the guilty knowledge test. So it's a type of polygraph test designed to determine if the person knows details about a crime. It was developed in the 1960, uh, 1960 and it does not assess deception but instead seeks to determine whether the suspect knows details about a crime that only the person who committed the crime would know. It is a multiple choice test with one correct answer called a critical option and the other are four incorrect answers. So the gu- the guilty person is assumed to display a larger physiological response to the correct option than the incorrect options. An innocent person who does not know the details of the crime would not have a larger uh, you know, comparative physiological uh, or physical response to any of the questions because none of it would be known. The test is commonly conducted by measuring a person's uh, palm of sweating, the sweat in the palm of uh, the hand. Now, some research has demonstrated that response times to questions can accurately identify participants uh, with guilty knowledge. This test is not commonly used in North America, but it is widely used in Israel and uh, in Japan. And prior knowledge, uh, you know, prior knowledge reported in the media is one factor that could distort the accuracy of the information. So depending on how much information is out there originally, uh, and in, obviously we know in North America we have a lot of information that goes out through social media and the news prior. It, it could skew the results. And perhaps this is one of the reasons it's not heavily used in North America. So when comparing the uh, different types of tests, the CQT test does have a high rate of, uh, positive, uh, of false positive results, indicating that innocent people do sometimes respond more to relevant than control questions, as I had said earlier. It suggests that the premise underlying the CQT does not apply to all suspects. Now, the gen- the Guilty Knowledge Test, or the GKT, is rarely used in North America and therefore limited data is available on the efficiency of the test in a North American context anyways. The success rate of utilizing a polygraph test seems to be higher when the examiner possesses specific details about the crime and the case in question. Now, this might indicate that examiners use extra polygraph cues um, Or they they notice they're using extra polygraph cues, uh, which allows them to be more efficient in conducting the test. But it also does raise uh, concerns about the generalizability of the test. Now, a a countermeasure is a technique that could be used to conceal guilt. And in the context of uh, polygraph research, it is a way to beat the polygraph test, so to speak. A 1994 study showed that 30 minutes of instruction on the rationale underlying the CQT was sufficient for community volunteers to learn how to escape detection using either a physical or a mental countermeasure. The 1992 study investigated whether anti-anxiety drugs would allow guilty subjects to appear innocent on the GKT. None of the drugs had an effect on the accuracy of the GKT. In addition, the polygraph examiner was able to identify 90% of the participants receiving drugs. Now, Psychopaths pose a potential challenge to polygraph tests, as they are described as being skilled at lying and having a limited capacity for anxiety or guilt. But researchers found that psychopaths do not display um, anticipatory stress uh, to threatening events. It's obviously only possible to test this problem in a laboratory sort of mock experiment. The results of multiple studies showed that both psychopaths and non-psychopaths were detected at the same rate. So the limitation of this knowledge is that whether or not psychopaths would be able to beat the polygraph during an actual field situation has never been investigated. Therefore, the assessment would fairly be considered inconclusive. Scientists generally question the accuracy of the CQT. Uh, test, right The, the control question test. They consistently believed the CQT was not scientifically sound nor suitable for evidence in court. In contrast, the GKT, the guilty knowledge test, was viewed as being based on sound scientific principles. And they also believed that the CQT, the control question test, can be circumvented by easily learned countermeasures. So, when you talk about psychologists versus law enforcement using them, uh, in a comprehensive report commissioned by the United States National Research Council, the findings did not support the validity of the polygraph. The committee issued uh, you know, s- some findings, and these were amongst them. The theoretical rationale for the polygraph is quite weak. Uh, especially in terms of differential fear arousals or other emotional states that are triggered in response to relevant and comparison questions. The existing validation studies had serious limitations, and assessments of polygraph validity did not meet any satisfactory minimal standards of research quality. So the historical views of the efficiency of polygraph tests remains a dominant viewpoint, and practitioners claim extremely high levels of accuracy, but these claims have rarely been reflected in empirical research. So there's a gap between what psychologists think about the polygraph test and what law enforcement people think about the, lo- about the polygraph test. The latter obviously being a group that thinks it's a very, very useful tool, but psychologists generally disagree, and their position is that it's very hard to measure in a scientific sort of way. But despite the scientific viewpoint, the CQT is still used by law enforcement as an investigative tool, whether or not it's actually valid. The polygraph causes many suspects to confess. At least that is the viewpoint of law enforcement, therefore providing resolution to a criminal investigation. Which obviously brings us to the next point, which is the admissibility of the polygraph. So the polygraph is used as an investigative aid, an investigative tool. Because in Canada, the polygraph evidence obtained is not admissible in a court of law. The precedent was established in a- uh, in versus Belland um, in 1987 when the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that polygraph evidence should not be admitted to help determine whether or not a person is telling the truth. They referred to the polygraph as being falsely imbued with the mystique of science um, that would cause jurors to weigh the polygraph evidence more than it deserves when determining a verdict. So in Canada, the the court was trying to suggest that, you know, we do need to rely on a judgment by our peers, the jury, uh, and to fulfill that important role as truth seekers and, uh, you know, determine whether or not something is believable. And the fear was that a polygraph gives the impression of a machine that cannot be wrong. And so erring on the side of uh, you know, caution decided, no, that it would not be admissible. Australian courts, they've come to the same conclusion. And in the United States, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1998 rejected the admissibility of the polygraph because of the belief that polygraph evidence would usurp, again, just like in Canada, the role of the jury um, as determinants of credibility, uh, you know, of the statements and of witness testimony. So, Clearly there is a gap. It is not acceptable evidence in court, but law enforcement strongly believe in the value of it, obviously so does employers because the test is still commonly utilized. And I think the point to focus in on is this idea that even if the information is not perfectly reliable, it definitely has an influence on how people, you know, perceive um the device, and therefore that alters or not whether or not someone is honest. Now, the last one I want to talk about for a little bit here is the brain-based polygraph techniques. So, research has been conducted to see if brain activity can be used to measure and detect deception. And numerous studies have been conducted over the last many years with no definitive results at all. So, some results reveal different patterns of brain activity when a person was being truthful versus deceptive. When participants made a deceptive response, they showed activity, um, you know, in the medial frontal uh, frontal cortex. This area of the brain plays an important role when the person is deciding between conflicting responses. So, investigators have also begun using fMRI—that's functional magnetic uh, resonance imaging—to determine. Uh, which areas of the brain are associated with deception the findings are not yet conclusive but some evidence suggests that the brain imaging techniques can differentiate which parts of the brain are involved in lying and so you know stay tuned in the future you might start to see different types of polygraph tests that have a whole different function in sort of the way they detect scientifically if you will someone's uh, you know lying So polygraph machines are not the only way to detect lying, right? Uh, Vocal and uh, non-verbal behavior cues are also used sometimes. So some of those other methods of deception uh, detection has been conducted through the analysis of vocal characteristics and non-verbal behavior. The underlying assumption is the same as that for the polygraph test. Uh, The act of deception, uh, deception would produce a physiological change compared to someone who's telling the truth. Right? So your body would respond to the lie, if you will. And in so responding, it would give away a tell, a tell being something that you could pick up on. And the argument is that it is more difficult for people to control aspects of their nonverbal behavior than their verbal behavior. So research results on whether nonverbal cues can be used as an indicator of deception is mixed, but most people will agree to a certain extent that you know those engaging in deception tend to move their hands or arms um, and feet or legs more than those telling the truth. Right now, the more traditional beliefs around other nonverbal behaviors such as gaze aversion, right—that's when you're looking away, the the nervous smiling. Uh, the self-manipulation, so the rubbing your hands. Uh, most most evidence suggests that these are not reliable indicators of deception. If a liar is not feeling excited, scared, or guilty, or if the lie is easy to fabricate, most behavioral cues to deception will likely not be present. So there is, a, there is an element of being good at lying um, and understanding how that works. Uh, but generally speaking, we're looking for a range of Uh, cues that we can put together. I would always suggest to you that you never want to look at a single um, indicator and then draw an overarching conclusion from it, right? If people are under stress, it is possible to detect deceit by paying attention to signs of emotions. So some of those are seen as microfacial expressions. However, this is more reliable only when it's a really high-stake lie and they're very very hard to detect for an untrained person um even for a trained person they happen in a in a microsecond so a difficult uh, task ahead the vocal indicator that has been most strongly associated with deception is voice pitch so those lies um those telling lies tend to speak in a higher pitch um in a higher pitch voice than those telling the truth right? And I guess there's a level of excitement or excitability when you're trying to convince somebody of something you know to be false. And that's why perhaps the person telling the truth might sound a little bit more even keel with a lower pitch uh, voice. Studies have found that increased use of speech disturbances and a slower rate of speech um, is common during deception, right? So that's somebody that interrupts themselves constantly. There's a lot of ums and ahs and pauses uh, in the sentence so that you can think. There's also a slower rate as you're trying to figure out what you want to say next. And as you're trying to craft that message, it's naturally going to slow down your speech speech a little bit. Cognitively, um, difficult lies have a noticeable Uh, different speech pattern than simple lies. So the more complex something is, the harder and more noticeable your speech pattern um, will sound because you're you're trying to do something that requires a a fair deal of cognitive sort of power. And the use of voice stress analysis technology does not always produce reliable results, so you really have to use multiple ways of measuring this stuff, right? So the verbal cues to lying um, may be a little bit more common. And one of the most reliable indicators of lying is a lack of detail. So people who are lying tend to provide fewer details than people telling the truth. Those lying tend to tell less compelling accounts of events compared to those telling the truth. And those lying tend to make less sense, be less plausible, lack logical structure, and have discrepancies in their story. Right? People telling the truth are more likely to spontaneously correct their stories and more likely to admit a lack of memory than those telling a lie. Right, They're trying harder to convince somebody of something. Deception cues tend to be easier to detect when a person is attempting to cover up a personal failing or personal transgression. So once again, you can see the role of emotion in language selection, in the manner in which we tell a story. And those telling the truth, uh, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, you're much more likely to be vulnerable in that circumstance and not feel the need to have every piece of your story perfectly uh, lined up. So you are likely to correct yourself on the fly and sort of keep moving. But that's not what we find with people who are telling lies uh, intentionally. Now, one of the reasons it may be difficult for people to detect when someone is lying is, is due to a truth bias, right? which is the tendency of people to judge more messages as truthful than deceptive overall. In a 1991 study, uh, they found that the most accurate detectors of deception were those who relied on multiple cues to assess credibility rather than any one cue so this is where i'm saying right you never want to be reading a single uh piece of evidence like uh, hands folded or wringing the palms or gaze aversion you never want to look for just one of those things because just one of those things could have uh, a different meaning but when you start to see them stacking up right these tells when these tells start to stack up you have a much better chance of assessing credibility right now, although detecting deception is difficult, it is possible to improve judgment through accuracy, uh, you know, your judgment um, in terms of training to look for certain cues. So never underestimate the quality and the power of training because training can teach a law enforcement officer to look for certain things that would help you understand when somebody's is being uh, deceptive, right? Seventy-five percent of police and custom officers believe that gaze aversion is a reliable indicator of deception, but all empirical research does not support this. So some of that might be a little bit cultural, right? This thinking that if you don't look at somebody or if you avert their gaze, that you must automatically be deceptive, is uh, or you might you might actually be you know lying is not actually true and yet very, very commonly believed. So something to be mindful of, right? That's a large number. That's three out of four uh, law enforcement people that believe something that has no research behind it. Right? Neither level of experience nor confidence in deception detection abilities are associated in any way with accuracy rates. Often, however, experienced uh, law enforcement people report being more confident in their decisions about the abilities to detect deception But when put to a test, in many studies show that they are no more reliable than a university student or a new police recruit, um, you know, who do not have the same level of confidence. This is no minor task, right, detecting deception. Now, judges and law enforcement officers have the unfortunate experience of having to decide between two witnesses and determine which one's more credible. Being able to detect deception in witnesses is key to uh, effective criminal investigations and trial procedures, right? However, dis- however, like I was saying earlier, even judges and law enforcement officers that are very confident in the ability in the ability to detect de- uh, deception are not always great at it. In actual fact, but in this setting, right, with witnesses, for example, uh, the consequences of errors can be dire. And caution really should be used in deciding on a deception detection strategy in those settings because assuming somebody is correct or assuming somebody is lying can have really, really massive uh, problems in those settings. Each year, in North America, an estimated 100,000 children testify as witnesses in criminal trials. And like deception in adults, deception in children varies in motivation and purpose. So children may lack the cognitive sophistication to understand how one um, lie requires additional lies just in order to achieve a coherent story. Although denying wrongful behavior is widespread in young children, it is difficult for them to sustain a coherent story as part of that deception. So lying to conceal a transgression and small lies such as an untruthful statement uh, that's usually told with no malicious intent emerges around three years old onwards. That's, that's when we start to see that uh, willful attempt to conceal something, right? And although young children are capable of deception they often fail to make their deception believable. So deception in young children may be inadequate because their cognitive systems have not developed either basic memory or attentional mechanisms or because they lack metacognitive abilities that would allow them to understand what is required to maintain a believable deception. Now, deception may be a central component of some psychological disorders, generally. Right? So, malingering, for example, is the intentional faking of psychological or physical symptoms for some type of external gain. A fictitious disorder is a disorder in which the person's physical and psychological symptoms are intentionally produced and are adopted to assume the role of a sick person. So the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, criteria for fictitious disorders include uh, 1. It must be a physical or psychological symptom that is uh, intentionally produced, 2. Internal motivation to assume the sick role, and 3. An absence of external incentives. So patients with fictitious uh, disorders might be aware that they are intentionally producing the symptoms, but may lack insight into the underlying psychological motivation. Uh, a rare fictitious disorder, as an example, would be Menchhausen syndrome. So Munchausen syndrome um, is one in which a person intentionally produces a physical complaint, and constantly seeks physicians' consultations, hospitalizations, and even surgery to treat the non-existent illness. This usually emerges by around the age of 20, it's very, very difficult to treat, and is chronic in nature. Now, the second one you might have heard more often, uh, whether it be in movies or in TV shows or documentaries, and that's Munchausen syndrome by proxy, or MBP right the term was coined to describe cases in which parents or caregivers falsified symptoms in their young children so 98 percent of the individuals were the biological mother of the child right that demonstrated uh this tendency almost nine percent of the cases resulted in the actual death of the child and most victims were aged four years or under right now what that's saying is you have a parent or caregiver falsifying the symptom uh, and then seeking, you know, physicians' consultations, hospitalizations, or even surgery to treat non-existent illnesses. The next one we have is somatoform disorders. So that's a disorder in which physical symptoms suggest a physical illness but have no known underlying a physiological cause and the symptoms are not intentionally produced. So patients here truly believe that they have a physical problem and are often and often consult with their doctors. Right? Somatoform disorders are very rare and often co-occur with other disorders such as depression or anxiety. Right? Now the next term you should know is malingering. And malingering um, has two key components. Malingering is the intentional uh, faking of psychological or physical symptoms for some type of external gain. So the two components are the psychological or physical symptoms are clearly under voluntary control and there are external motivations for the production of those symptoms. So people typically malinger mental illness for one of the following uh, you know, external motivations. They're trying to avoid punishment by pretending to be unfit. Um, you know, mentally, cognitively. Prisoners or patients might be looking uh, for narcotics or other substances. They might be seeking financial gain from disability claims or workers' compensation. Uh, They might seek admission to hospital or obtain free room and board. And those would all be external motivations that would get somebody to malinger an illness of some sort, right? So unlike people with fictitious or somatoform disorders, People who are malingering tend to avoid physical testing and assessment. The prevalence rate of malingering is relatively high in forensic contexts. So approximately 45% uh, evaluated for competence or mental state at the time of offence produced invalid psychological testing profiles. Um, 20% of emergency jail referrals feigned psychological symptoms. Given these large numbers, it's clear that malingering should be considered in all forensic evaluations. Now, the opposite of malingering is defensiveness. And defensiveness refers to the conscious denial or extreme minimization of physical or psychological symptoms. Patients or offenders may seek to present themselves in a favorable light. So people might want to appear to be functioning well in order to meet an external need, such as being a fit parent or um, an internal need, such as an unwillingness to acknowledge that they have a disorder. Defensiveness is commonplace in evaluations of sex offenders. The majority of sex offenders either deny the sexual offending or greatly minimize the effects of their sexual offending. Now on a, on a related but unrelated note, a really interesting paper was published in 1973 by, by David Rosenhan, entitled, Being Sane in Insane Places. And he was trying to investigate the accuracy of psychiatric diagnosis and the consequences of diagnostic labels. The study raised concerns about the use of labels and how such labels can influence the meaning of behaviors. Once a person is designated, abnormal, all of his or her other behaviors tend to get colored by that very label. Similar to the criminological theory of Howard Backer uh, that, you know, I talk about in other courses, but his study has implications for law enforcement because when dealing with people who may have a a previous psychiatric diagnosis or label, you can imagine how that can color the view of law enforcement when they're responding to such a call. It would, it would be easy to treat a subject as abnormal if that was consistent with previous diagnosis. This could lead criminal investigations astray and have negative consequences on the validity of interviews and interrogations because we're starting from a position where we've already assumed something to be true. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't consider, obviously, previous diagnosis. It's just, I think, what, what he was trying to highlight in this paper was the implication of a label And how that label can then color other forms of, you know, investigative analysis. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, We will uh, come back uh, on our next episode where we'll be talking a little bit more about eyewitness testimony. So uh, I hope you enjoyed listening. This is Professor G, and you're listening to Complexity Unpacked on our fourth season where we're discussing forensic psychology. Have a great day.